Welcome to Feeling It, a podcast where we discuss TV, movies, pop culture, and whether or not we are feeling it. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. And here we go. Come on, walk and talk. Alright, here we go. You guys want to hear something neat? It's showtime! Hold your ears, folks. Here we go! See what you can do now. Take your position. Alright, ladies, buckle up. Let's do this. Hold on to your butts. Seriously? Listen to me very, very carefully. Hey, it's me again. Eat him up. Enjoy. Uh, finding Nemo soundtrack. Not finding Memo. There we go. Different movie. Yes. <laughs> Much more a, boring movie. It's a lot more corporate. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello. Welcome to this week of Feeling It. We're going to start off and talk about what we're feeling this week, and then we're going to move on and talk about our beloved new Pixar entry, Finding Dory. We love Pixar over here, so we're really excited to talk about it. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. Um, But first off, let's introduce ourselves. And when you do so, tell us what's your favorite song to listen to by the water. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure. I'm Lawson Soward, an art director at an ad agency here in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I think my favorite song to listen to on the water is uh, Sunday Smile by Beirut. It just feels like you're at this little carnival beach, and I love it. It's so relaxing. Lucas. Um, I'm Lucas Wright, a designer in the Bay Area, and last night we had a bonfire on the beach, and I think my favorite bonfire beach song is uh, Beach Baby by Bon Iver, because it's chill, but it's still a beach song. <laughs> How picturesque. I know. (laughs) Brent? My name is Brent Bailey. I live in Chicago, and I write about uh, theology and pop culture online. And my favorite, uh, I think the original question was beach or lake. My favorite lake song for sure is a song called Cathedral Pines by a singer-songwriter named Youngest Son. Nice. And I'm Sandra Amstutz. I'm a social media manager also living in Nashville, Tennessee. And mine is Summer Girls by LFO. Um, all right. So let's start off. Lucas, what are you feeling this week? I am feeling the new season of Orange is the New Black. Do you uh, guys watch this show? I've watched the first two seasons and I was in love with it and I'm a little bit behind. I have not it's... watched a single episode, but I think pretty much everybody, every human being that I know in person has already watched all of season four. <laughs> it's, it's some of the best programming that exists. Yeah, season two, I remember thinking, like, this is the best television that's out right now. Yeah, it is It is something, I mean, it being a Netflix show, I definitely think it's something that can't happen um, on network TV. And it, this season really ramps it up. I feel like like what happens in most Netflix shows and has happened with Orange is the New Black in the past, um, the first couple episodes is just setting everything up, um, which... Some, some people hate, I think is absolutely fine. Um, on a regular network, I don't think you'd be given that option. It, it would just be try to get into, get as many viewers as possible to get into the season as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but here with Netflix, because it's bingeable, it really allows you to kind of re-meet some of these characters that you haven't seen in a year um, and really kind of dive into what, what their issues are. Um, and I, I am, I'm in, I am seven episodes in and episode six and seven is when stuff really gets out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it, I think this season it takes it, it takes some of the, the race relations and some of the kind of anger that's happening in this prison, um, to a whole new level. So for, for those of you who haven't seen Orange is the New Black, this is basically a show set in a women's prison. Um, and Basically, the whole cast is female. Most of them are um, minorities, and it's it's a great setting to display some great acting from some people you've never heard of before. And this show does a great job of bringing in some new characters that you've never met um, and really, really does a great job of diving deeper with the ones that you have. Yeah, I, I, I can't speak to season four because I, I am behind, but I... This show is really like what binge watching is made for. Oh, yeah. I know those first two seasons, I couldn't stop watching it. Not out of just like, oh, I'm comfortable and I just want to keep watching another episode. No, like when those episodes end, you can't not click play on the next episode. Mm-hmm. They're so yeah. incredibly compelling. Yeah, whenever it yeah. premiered on Friday, I um, asked Lindsay, I was like, do you want to uh, watch some Oranges and New Black? And she's like, 
no, I want to sleep tonight. Yeah. Like, there's this <laughs> feeling that if you watch one, it is, it's the Pringles of, like, Netflix programming. And I mean, all they make shows to be bingeable in general, but they are really knocking it out of the park when it comes to Orange is a New Black. Um, I also love about that show, I mean, it's, it's incredible writing and incredible character studies, but I love that it's set in a prison because it kind of, it talks about some real social issues around prisons that don't get talked about very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt kind of a public consciousness raising around like, oh, our prison system is really messed up ever since this show came on. And it's, I mean, of course, it's all a work of fiction, but it's so um, encouraging to be like, yeah, we're having these conversations that really need to be happening. Um and it's some of the most entertaining, well-done scripted TV. Absolutely. I remember when season one came out, I was listening to some like critics talk about the show and how great it was. And it was a bunch of male critics. And I remember mm-hmm. one of them saying, like, all of these amazing actresses that I've never heard of before, they just came out of the woodwork. Where have they been hiding? <laughs> and it was like, they haven't been hiding. No one's <laughs> yeah. been giving them jobs. Well, that's it's, that. It's like that's the something that's really b- yeah. bountiful if you just write the roles for it. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of these women aren't women that you would put in leading roles because they're not, you know, super skinny, super, you know, gorgeous women. Um, and I feel like nobody's been casting them because of that, but they are fantastic actresses and they work perfectly in this, in this show. Um, I think this is a show that is going to be really awesome to revisit once it's over, mm-hmm. once it's completely done, like years down the road and rewatch this just because the cast is so big. And I think that's, that's a hard thing is to keep up with how many characters, you know, in this show, um, and just kind of keep them all, um, I guess, engaged. I feel like each season they've done a good job of bringing in one of the lesser known characters that have been there the whole time um, and kind of raising the stakes for that character. So you get a little more background on them. Um, But yeah, with such a big cast, it's just really difficult to, to key in on everybody. Yeah. You know, Lucas, I've never thought about that, but you're right. I really do think that this is going to be a show that people will revisit for like decades and decades after it finishes. Um, shows like the Sopranos or the wire where it's like these, these shows that are revered and held up to a high standard and people even long after they're over are like, Oh, you haven't seen the wire. I can't believe that you need to like, you need, that needs to be part of your television knowledge. Mm-hmm. I really do hope and feel like this has the potential to become a show like yep, that. definitely. Brent, what are you feeling this week? Uh, this week I'm feeling a show that actually does not reward binge watching. I discovered this the hard way this week <laughs> by uh, trying to binge watch it. Uh, but I'm... Uh, I'm going to stay on the Netflix boat and say that I'm feeling a show called Breaking the Magician's Code, Magic's Biggest Secrets Revealed. Uh, This was one of those, like, magical, nostalgic discoveries where it exists as sort of this phantom memory for me um, from childhood where occasionally I would remember that the show existed and how obsessed I was with it as a child. Um... But I had not heard anything about it for probably 15 years, and so when I stumbled across it on Netflix, it was like kind of a shock and a delight. It started with four hour-long specials. I think they aired on Fox from 1997 to 1998. And then there was a fifth episode that aired in 2002, and then this was a complete surprise to me. Evidently in 2008, the series came back for 13 more episodes. So in my memory, there have been four episodes, and it turns out on Netflix now there are 18. So that I was like overjoyed when I found this. Um... <laughs> But, yeah, so the idea of breaking the magician's code is that you have this masked magician who says, you know, I'm going to go, the magician's code is, I assume it's, you don't reveal how magic tricks are done, um, but this magician has decided he's going to break the magician's code and he's going to reveal to us how you do all of these, like, popular large-scale illusions. He's a rebel. Um, so they just take you, yeah, so so he and his four assistants, um will like perform tricks and then they'll take you through and, and explain how they're done. Um, so there's a lot that I, th- this show is just so incredibly campy and overdone and over serious and watching it as an adult, there's a few different things I've noticed. The first is <laughs> just my the, illusions. <laughs> yes. uh, that, yeah, that's been going through my head a lot. The first is to see absolute over self seriousness of the show and its host in the first four episodes. The host is Mitch Pileggi from 
Uh, I think he was like on the X-Files and a few other things. But um, he just had the whole series. I mean, it opens with Mitch Pileggi walking onto the screen in a very like 90s America's Most Wanted kind of way to be like, we need to tell you that what we're about to do is very dangerous and we're putting a lot of people's <laughs> careers at risk and we just feel like it is something that we have to do. But please know that this is uh, really we are doing something really profound here um, to introduce this idea that this magician is going to break the magician's code. Um, there's a lot of self-seriousness. The entire show takes the concept of the quote-unquote magician's code very seriously without ever explaining any of the mythology of this code or any of the backstory or how magicians interact with each other or who enforces it. So the stakes <laughs> of the show are kind of bizarrely explained. And I don't know if in the early 90s people were just really in on the magic scene or like <laughs> magic subculture. The magician's um, code with which we are all infinitely familiar. Well, and that's like that's exactly the approach it takes. It just assumes you know like what the magician's code is and and who all these magicians are. Um, so as the show goes on, uh, it's hilarious that they keep referencing that there's like been endless speculation about the magician's identity. So like episode two, episode three, they're like, <laughs> we know you're all guessing who the magician is, but you're wrong. Nobody's figured it out. But I just like. <laughs> I feel like at no point have there ever been more than like maybe two or three magicians that were really famous at all that people would have, unless you like live in Las Vegas. Um, I mean, maybe in the 90s it was different. But, it's not but like. Ben Teller, David Blaine, or. David like, Copperfield. David Copperfield. Yeah. It's like, and David I, Blaine is like recent. Right. Like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, Chris Angel, Chris Angel Mind Freak. I don't know. <laughs> I got five. Right. So. Um, in like episode three or four, well, in episode four, they reveal the mass magician. So for all the future episodes, they just use different people. But in episode four, they reveal who the mass magician is. And there's just so much more talk about all the controversies surrounding the show. And they actually mention angry magicians, which of course brings to mind that episode of Rusted <laughs> Development that Lawson already mentioned, yeah. where yes. uh, Job gets in bad with like the, um, the magician's union. Um, one of the, one of the like, sort of hilarious but also really kind of painfully dated and at times bordering on offensive elements of the show is that the host has this sort of gross leery but kind of dry humor um the i mean so you've got four of course he does. <laughs> right you've got i mean it's the magic culture you've got four like very scantily clad female assistants who assist in all the tricks uh but this is a clip of the narrator from season five the trick is that the magician is going to balance a woman on the bristles of a broom. So basically, like, he comes out and he sets her on top of, like, three brooms, and then they remove most of them, so she's basically levitating, balancing on a broom. So this is the how the narrator describes it. Here comes the magician and his next victim right on cue. The rose is a nice touch. They say girls really fall for flowers. Let's hope she doesn't fall for him, then to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, oh pretty much all the narration is, like, really awful humor that is kind of misogynistic, <laughs> uh, or at least really diminishing. Um, it's tough to tell if he's diminishing because they're women or because they're dancers or because they're magicians' assistants, but whatever reason, the show has a weird relationship with its cast. I mean, when you um, were passing around, like, guys, I'm going to be talking about breaking the magician's code for what I'm feeling this week. We all saw the cover and we were like, Brent, you can't talk about like softcore porn on the podcast. <laughs> like it looks yeah, that so scandalous on racy. the cover. It's ridiculous. Indeed. Um, so yeah, for me, the delight of the show always though was I think there for I think every person's different in their approach to magic tricks, but I always enjoyed learning how they worked because they felt like really interesting puddle puzzles or riddles for me to figure out. And this show completely satisfies that itch. So. That is Breaking the Magician's Code, Magic's Biggest Secrets Revealed. Wonderful. Lawson, what are you feeling this week? All right. What I'm feeling this week is Season 2 of Invisibilia. Have you guys li listened to this podcast before? Nope. Yes, I did. I listened to all of Season 1. I didn't realize Season 2 was already coming out. I've listened yep. to a couple episodes from Season 1, but I haven't I haven't jumped in yet. I am so excited about this new season. Um, It's... Alex Spiegel and Lulu Miller, and they have a new co-host uh, named Anna Rossi, and she's fantastic. Um, season one, you guys listened to a couple episodes, but it's so good. It's about, like, the invisible forces that kind of, like, uh, are at work in our world that we don't think about very often, and they're taking them out of the realm of subtext and making them into text and exploring them. Um, 
as those themes interact with certain people and people who have a wealth of knowledge talking about larger systems, but also uh, very personal takes on it. Um, I mean, they talk about subjects that seem way too broad and like there's no way they'll be able to make anything digestible or say anything new about them, but somehow they always do and I'm always fascinated. Um, I mean, season one had episodes about like uh, fear and categorization like things that seem like okay that's a really large thing with a lot of uh kind of tentacles and different parts of the way we live and think about the world but they really do a good job of unpacking it and uh, and exploring it um so i highly recommend going back and listening to season one if you haven't yet um there are people from uh this american life and from uh Radio Lab, which are two other amazing podcasts kind of joining forces to make this newest one. Um, and so season two just started this week, and it was so, so good. I've been looking forward to it. It's weird. I've only ever looked forward to a new season of a podcast like this for Serial. And so it was kind of a, a fun experience to be eagerly anticipating a, a new free podcast to drop. But um it did not disappoint. It's fascinating. It's very good. It's uh, This newest episode is about a lot of things, um, but the thing that stuck out to me the most was uh, they talk a little bit about the first McDonald's in Russia and uh, explore the sociological and psychological ramifications of America's work requirement for service with a smile, which, having worked in the service industry before, um, is something that I was completely fascinated by. And Russian culture just always seems like this uh, huge subject that there's a wealth of stories to be told about that are, are things that I've just somehow existed unawares of. So I was fascinated by all of it. Can't recommend it highly enough. Um, season one and season two of Invisibilia are available wherever you get podcasts. Lawson, when I listened to the first season, I think they they told some really amazing stories and i'll i mean i'll absolutely listen but my only kind of irritation with this podcast was similar to my irritation which is with serial which is it kind of feels like part of the distinct voice or tone they try to have to differentiate themselves from shows like um this american life or radio lab is almost like it feels a little less professional and polished to me so you get a lot more of like just kind of banter and rapport between the hosts you get a lot more of them just kind of naturally reacting to things and i think when it comes to a po when it comes to podcasts that are about kind of pop culture or about um or just generally like people kind of riffing off of each other i enjoy that kind of stuff but on shows like these it always feels a little out of place to me because i kind of think that the hosts should since they're taking a more journalistic approach, it feels to me like the hosts, not that they have to completely silence themselves, but that they should have kind of a more serious tone. Um, has anybody else ever like noticed that about these shows? I'm like really shocked and appalled that you want to silence women. <laughs> not what I'm trying <laughs> no, to say. No, not what you're saying at all. I totally, <laughs> yeah, so that definitely is, I mean, that's a good point I, I didn't mention, but they are buddies and they kind of put their friendship uh, as part of the in-between segments it's not completely cut and dry and journalistic thing to journalistic thing um i i don't know why i've never been bothered by it uh i'm i'm like you brent if it's something where it's like a round table and people are just like riffing off each other and talking then that's totally fine um but it is kind of like in this weird in-between space of uh it's not completely buttoned up professional but it's also not uh something where there's no script or there's no production and everything. They go on these intense exposés and they have a whole bunch of, uh, obviously a whole bunch of preparation that they put into it and a lot of editing that happens, but then they just leave in some of the, uh, some of the goofing off in between. So I don't know if it's because some of the stuff they're talking about is really serious and they want to do that for levity or what, but it's, um, yeah, there definitely is kind of a, a mix of, of feels going on. All right. Well, thanks Lawson. Um, yeah, it, it's something that has been recommended to me so many times, but has never made it into my podcast queue yet. So maybe I'll give a few episodes a listen. Um, so this week, what I'm feeling is one of my favorite reality shows of all time. It usually comes on during the summer, and it's the perfect thing to watch during the summer. Um, it's a TV show called Are You the One on MTV. Are any of y'all familiar with this at all? I'm assuming not. No, nope. I've not even heard of it. 
I'm familiar with the premise, and I'm really excited to hear you talk about it. <laughs> Lawson <laughs> has definitely heard me talk about this show before. <laughs> um, so this, okay, to me, this is the greatest premise for a reality show of all time. It's a dating show, um, and the premise is that they take 10 20-something women and 10 20-something men who are quote-unquote bad at relationships. Of course, they're all crazy hot. Most of them are pretty dumb. And um, they take these 20, 20-somethings and put them all in a house together on a tropical location. Hawaii, um, like some island, you know, just a place where we don't, it doesn't really matter. There's a beach, there's a pool, you know. <laughs> just an opportunity suits. for people to take their shirts off. Yeah. I'll, constantly. Okay, <laughs> so it sounds like, First off, it sounds like a cheesy MTV re- reality dating show, like nothing so, special. So far. Yep. Right, so far. Here's where the brilliance comes in. All right, here so we go. So the show's creators have so, – uh, this is – okay, take all of this with a grain of salt. That This is probably isn't accurate science, but for the sake oh, of the I've show, got, we're going to It's MTV. It I've got me. like eight grains of salt here. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so the show's creators have handpicked these contestants and – They've done so using matchmakers, interviews with their friends and family, interviews with their exes, and they've hand-selected these 20-somethings so that each person in the house has a perfect match in the show. So so 10 women, 10 men, one of them is their perfect match. And do we, the audience, know that? Yes. Like, know who? Well, we don't know who is whose perfect match, okay. but both the contestants and the audience know that your perfect match is in this house, okay? Okay. okay. So, but no, but the, you don't know who it is. Now, here's the great part. If, We're not even to the great part. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is the real great part. If everyone in the house finds their perfect match by the end of the summer and gets it correct... The whole house gets to split a million dollars. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the way that they test this is that every week they have, at the end of the episode, there's a matchup ceremony where um, week one, the girls get to choose who, the girls get to say, like, Brian is my perfect match. And then the next girl gets to be like, Joseph is my perfect match. And so... The girls get to select, and then the next week the guys get to select, and they, they alternate weeks. Um, but So everyone pairs up, and then there's a ceremony where they find out how many matches they got correct. Again, not who, but how many out of ten they got correct. Um, and so you're just trying to get closer and closer to get all ten correct. And if they they have 10 tries to get all 10 correct. Um, some ways that they can like narrow down their options and know that they're get that they're going in the right path is each week they also get to use um, a helpful tool called the truth booth. Mm. In the truth booth, the house gets to vote for one couple to be sent into the truth booth and the truth booth will tell them whether or not that couple is a match or not. That truth booth sounds uncouth. <laughs> Here's the other kicker, is that if the truth booth tells you that you are a match, then that couple gets to leave the house and go to a honeymoon suite all by themselves. Oh. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, this also this, this show is also pretty classy, because in the house, there's one room dedicated called the Boom Boom Room, which is just the... Wow. Part. So you have the Boom Boom Room and the Truth Sleuth. No, the Truth Booth. What is it? Yes. The Booth of Truth? Yeah, no, that's right. Truth Booth. Right. Um, I, I'm picturing like a palm tree with coconuts painted on the boom boom room. <laughs> yeah. So, so this show is really fun, of course, because it's a reality dating show, and those are just fun to watch. But it's also so exciting because you, as a contestant, are trying to figure out who the matches are, just like the contestants are. Um, they one thing that happens almost every single season is that. Uh, one, two people, a guy and a girl, meet in the first episode, and they instantly have, like, great chemistry. They think, they're like, if this guy isn't my match, this is a quote that almost always happens, if this guy isn't my match, I don't know who could be. And it's usually bonding over something really dumb, like, they both 
have a, the same favorite movie or something. Are they both like the Beatles? <laughs> exactly. Nobody so, likes the Beatles on these shows. They fall That's for true. each other like really hard. Oh my gosh, first... you hate the Beatles too? <laughs> <laughs> they fall for each other really hard the first episode. So, of course, the house votes them into the truth booth. And, of course, they're not a match. Oh, and no. then the rest of the summer becomes this, like, Romeo-Juliet story of they can't be together, but they want to be so desperately. <laughs> and, like, that couple, like, hooking up constantly and the rest of the house getting mad at them for not trying to find their real match. Um, oh, it, man. Teamwork and relationship dynamics. It, it's teamwork With money in involved. a house full of super horny assholes. So, like... <laughs> That should be their tagline. Yeah. yeah. Like they're all they're all jerks to each other and they're all so <laughs> dumb. And so and they all just want to have sex with each other. So it makes like trying to like find true love a little bit tricky. Uh, <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. Um but I will say it has happened. There have been couples that have like met on this show and that are still real life couples. Some of them even have gotten married and have ki- and had kids. So it can work, guys. True love is real. <laughs> um, oh, God. Last season, I, this is its fourth season just aired this past week, which is why I'm feeling it in particular this week. Last season was so, like, mind-bending that me and my roommate literally had a spreadsheet where we had all the couple combinations paired up and we were trying to do the math, trying to solve this puzzle of what, who the real couples are. Um, it, it's really, really fun. I, I know that it doesn't sound like an MTV reality dating show doesn't sound like the kind of thing that like you need to jump on board, but I promise you once you stop watching, you will have a blast. I, it, every single person I've introduced this show to, my mom, old college roommates, current people that I live with, as soon as they start watching, they're in love with it. So highly recommend Are You the One on MTV. Sandra, I'm imagining that every season one of the matches is a gay couple just kind of like as a free oh, space for I the wish. team. Here's the thing. It is like so straight and that is that is unfortunate. I've, I really wish that they – the host – I will say the host of the show, I adore him. He – you can tell that he knows how dumb and ridiculous all this is. And he's just having a fun time on an island somewhere, like, for two months out of his year. Um, he also used to be an actor on a favorite show called Cougar Town, so I have affection for him there. But anyway, the host has given interviews about the show, and he is, like, super – I mean, he doesn't have any control over this, but he has said that he would love to do a a season where it's just gay couples. And I've thought about how you could do this. And it honestly would be even better TV because you could do like 10, you could do 20 guys or 20 girls, or you could do like 10 guys and 10 girls, however you want to do this. Let's just say you're doing 20 guys. All you have to do if, if again, if you're sticking to like monogamy, um, is that you t- t- say 10 guys, you're group A, the other 10 guys are group B, one of your matches is with the other letter. But then you have the added drama of maybe two A's fall in love with each other. It's true. Yes. Yeah. You've, re- you've really thought this through, Sandra. Oh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about our <laughs> one. Oh, I, sh- I should also mention, like I said, they're usually, they're very dumb people. And, um... <laughs> And and reality TV tends to cast on people because it's they're easier to manipulate and like it makes yeah. for better television. Um, but what they usually will do is they'll throw in one like decently smart guy into the group so that by the end of the season when they really have to get down to business and do the math of like okay <laughs> that person can't be your match and this only these two people can be your match they have like one guy to like like um beautiful mind to the whole thing yeah <laughs> one cast member can do basic algebra and right. the rest are just <laughs> and, yeah. and then they all just kind of there's always a shot at the end of the season of the one guy and they're not given like pen and paper so he's like he's using like solo cups to like oh my god <laughs> try to figure out the whole thing like representing uh. people and it's like a group of girls like watching him <laughs> So. There is no better tool they could use to like work through that than red solo cups. Absolutely. <laughs> well, if you're into hot, dumb people falling in love on a deadline for money, this sounds like the show for you. <laughs> yeah. The first three seasons are really great. Four season just started. Um, it's a fun, fun show. 
Finding Nemo came out. Um, Half my life. Yeah, it's been <laughs> such such a long time. Um, yeah, it's finally here. We're going to talk about it without spoilers for this first half, and then we'll let you know when spoilers are coming. Brent, you are our Pixar dedicated super fan. Um, how? What were you expecting from Finding Dory, and did it deliver? Great question. Yes, uh, I would call myself a Pixar super fan. Um, I eagerly anticipate just about every single Pixar film. Um, My expectations for uh, Finding Dory, I will say I was mostly just afraid that it would kind of flop in the way that like a Cars 2 flopped, or I would even say to some extent like a Monsters University, um, sort of spectacularly enough to spoil the franchise. Um, Some part of me hoped that it would just be another sweet, um, more complex than most animated fair addition to the Pixar canon, and a very small part of me really hoped that it would kind of achieve the same emotional heights that um, that Finding Nemo achieved. Uh, and I feel like ultimately it kind of landed somewhere in between those second two options, somewhere in between just being another sweet, um, complex animated film, and at times really kind of touching at the same emotional heights. So... Yeah, I had heard positive things about this film. Um, hearing about the cast that was returning and all the folks who were involved, um, I I was really hoping that Pixar would really hit this one out of the park. Um, and so I think I think ultimately the story they told in Finding Nemo is just always going to pack a bigger punch. It's going to have a lot more emotional heft and emotional weight. But I think they bring back a lot of characters that we really love. Um, I think that by centering... I mean, there's a lot to say, but I think that by centering the film on Finding Dory, they're able to explore some really interesting themes, not just about um, memory and about optimism and creativity, but also even about, like, the kind of the real ongoing life dynamics of, of... living with and loving somebody who has something like an intellectual disability or a learning disability and how you can love that person, but it can also provide some emotional strain. So yeah, I think that, I think this is still Pixar on top of their game. I think we're kind of, I do kind of feel like we're past the, we may be past the time when Pixar is putting out masterpieces like Finding Nemo and like WALL-E and like um, some of their, some of their greatest films. But I think this is, um, if finding if Pixar is going to keep putting out sequels like this, then I think that I'll be completely satisfied, and they're still putting out really entertaining, really heartfelt films. You know, it may just be because I was a youth when I saw Finding Nemo, and I'm an adult now. But Finding Dory felt like a much more adult story to me. Um, it I I thought it was beautiful, and I had a wonderful time while I was there. But Finding Nemo felt like it was incredible. I laughed so hard in Finding Nemo, um, or at least I remember laughing incredibly hard. And Finding Dory had a lot of great humor, but it wasn't like this incredibly humorous film like Finding Nemo was. And it felt much more like an adventure tale. They're they're both have about this like adventure that our main characters are taking. Um, but this one felt really a lot like an adventure film. Like every new step, there was something that they had to get escape from. Um, yeah. And, and that's not even a good or a bad thing. It's just a a difference in tone and storylines from Finding Nemo to this one. Yeah, I would agree. I feel like, um, when I walked out of this movie, I felt like, oh, that was as good as Finding Nemo. It felt like, um, they were trying to do distinct things and I know that, I mean, comparing stuff in general is kind of, like, there's an inherent flaw there. So it's hard to say that this is as good or better or, or whatever. But um, I 
really felt like it still hit a lot of really potent emotional notes and um, was incredibly entertaining, had a lot of really funny elements added into it, did a good job of continuing the story without feeling like they were rehashing old stuff, like it felt like they were doing a very different thing, even though it was still a situation where one person was with me and I knew where they were and now I don't and I need to find them. Like, other than that, everything else about it felt really fresh and new. Um, But something about this, like, narrative of... Uh, her missing her family and her missing her home it was I I feel you uh, what you're saying Sandra there's kind of this like I don't know like underlying sadness about it and it was felt a lot more uh it hit me a lot harder and it may for me too it may just be that I was younger when I saw the first one and so I didn't feel like maybe whenever I have a you know a kid one day and I watch Finding Nemo be like holy crap how did I not die when I watch this but um I for me in the phase of life where I'm in right now um there's this sadness about like what it means to lose home or like forget what home feels like like I I remember my parents uh but I live a thousand miles away from them so like there were scenes that I cried at in this movie that were for understandable reasons that like everybody in our row except for the like super pumped 10 year old next to me was crying but um there were also scenes where she like just couldn't remember her home other than like this a feeling and half a memory that made me kind of mourn for the feeling I used to have of this like accessible childhood home like life moves on and it's healthy and everything but I didn't realize that I still had like some mourning to do around being so far away from that and this movie like really stirred that in me so even though it is like a fun movie you walk out of it it's not like oh man i'm just like in this dark introspective place like it does a lot of emotional work yeah i think i think for me it is it is definitely one of the more complex pixar movies um and i feel like what i feel like one of the things that really makes it makes it interesting is trying to continue kind of living with with these characters. I feel I feel like Finding Nemo wrapped up really well. Um and to continue this story with Dory, um like that at the very beginning when it kind of talks about kind of where they are, you know, a year. This story kind of starts a year after the events of Finding Nemo. Um and it's just it's really interesting like 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 you said dealing with, you know, living with somebody with with a disability. I feel like in Finding Nemo, they 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 celebrate um, people with disabilities and and are able to you know in, encourage individuality there. But I feel like this kind of dives more into you know I don't know how to say this without sounding. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like it's 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 difficult and it it kind of shows the struggle, um of of someone living with someone with a disability um and kind of the sacrifice that goes into that and the care and stuff like that um and i i I was kind of curious if that would come up because the first movie is so much about um nemo's disability um and there are a ton of characters with disabilities in this movie as well and i feel like it's really encouraging to um to see that again um kind of in a a different direction this this time it's funny because i kind of forgot about how nemo was the story about what it's like to live, like uh, that it was a story about a fish with a disability to me it was all about just like a father finding his son and i forgot that like the reason one of those driving forces what he was so scared about his son exploring anything because of that disability and how and just to be clear for anybody who can't remember nemo has like a gimp fin i think is what they call it they call it a lucky fin but right (laughs) (laughs) um Right. And so and how this one is really more about, you know, how disabilities like cause you to have to work through them um, and how like the, there is like work that has to be put into this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's a good it's a great thing to see that it's not it is positive. It is uplifting. It is that like you can have friends and family and like live through and and like have this incredible life but it is also that it is it does require work and it is hard sometimes and like that is a story that i think is important to tell that it's not just all like roses and inspirational speeches right it's not Mm -hmm. like this tidy traditional disney arc which they've done in the past of they worked really hard they had this disability and then at the end 
they've met a fairy and now they don't have that disability anymore. Like, yeah, it's they're living with Dory's living with short term memory loss and having to come up with ways to cope with that coming up with creative ways to live her life that way. Their family is coming up with creative ways to love her and to um, give her the best life they can. And at the end of it, it's it's this great, the message is so positive. Um, just kind of being like, yeah, you're not, you know, you're going to have short-term memory loss your whole life, but you have this group of people that love you and that know that you can still live a rich and a full life and that it's just kind of different like it's different from ours but it's not there's no judgment placed on it it's just like yeah. you do these things to live um and we're so proud of and in love with and uh captivated by and inspired by like there's a lot of stuff in the movie <laughs> about how inspiring the way that dory does things is to marlin and uh to the people who are around her so it's sure um so yeah i just really loved that message i think it says a lot about pixar and the characters they create that in finding nemo you had um obviously these three protagonists dory marlin and nemo and in that film nemo was on his own so he kind of had his own plot and then marlin and dory were on the adventure together and so obviously you had a lot of like hilarious banter between the two of them and so yeah i think it says a lot about them that they can shift the dynamic where now we have dory on her own even though she's kind of working with this octopus named hank and then you've got nemo and marlin together and they develop kind of their own distinct banter um and i just love the idea that i think you could even have a movie now where like dory and nemo are finding marlin and it would still really work because all three of these characters are so distinct and so interesting that the different combinations bring out different um bring out different dynamics but they're all interesting on their own too because they all have their own different arcs so i think centering dory was a great decision for this film and i think allowing us to see because the first film separated marlin and nemo i think allowing us to see them you know they really don't have much of an emotional arc in this movie and i that was fine they're almost just kind of like comic relief as they're trying to reunite with dory um Mm -hmm. and i thought that they fit that role really perfectly also like pixar created an amazing character when they made dory for finding nemo but i think also one thing that made that movie so special and this movie so incredible is like the acting talents of ellen degeneres like Mm -hmm. we we rarely get we rarely get to see her in that kind of um you know, career anymore as just an actress. And yeah, her, she's incredible. I was so moved by her performance in this. Yeah. I think, I think she, I, I, I feel like she was, she was kind of underrated in, in, in uh, finding Nemo. Absolutely. Um, and, and she does a fantastic job. She has one really big emotional scene in finding Nemo. Um, and I think she has, a couple more emotional scenes in in this movie um and she nails it I, I definitely i definitely feel like um she really gets that character in the first movie there was a bunch of buzz around dory being a great character but i don't remember hearing much about it being ellen degeneres incredible acting it was more of uh pixar wrote this amazing character whereas with this movie and her being at the forefront it's really it's unavoidable that so much of what this character is is what she's bringing to it uh, while we're talking about Dory and her performance, let's talk about some of the new characters because there are quite a few. Obviously, the most the most prominent is Ed O'Neill playing Hank, this octopus. You've also got you've got these two um, well, you've got these two whales, a whale shark, I guess, and a beluga. You've got Caitlin Olsen as Destiny, and then you've got um, Ty Burrell as Bailey. Um, you've got these two are they sea lions or yeah, they're sea lions, right? And just yeah. all the Dominic West, a little reunion of the wire there, fluke and rudder. Um, yeah, I think just about all of them I enjoyed. Um, you have lots of like great comedic pairings there. Pixar did a great job of, I mean, if you, I feel like if you don't have, if you introduce lots of individual characters, it's hard to really flesh them out. But by introducing almost all of them in pairs, uh, you get a lot more of their personalities coming out immediately in the, in the interactions that they have with each other. Yeah, it couldn't, for the life of me, I could not identify the voice of the octopus throughout this movie of Hank was a character, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was driving me up a wall. And so whenever (laughs) finally the credits played, I was like, Oh, this is, I mean, him and Ty Burrell, like it's just like a modern family reunion, but he did so good. Like his voice was perfect for that, um, for that role of kind of this wizened, hardened, uh, but still like really 
cranky. helpful. Yeah, like, cranky, but like heart of gold. Like it was, he did so well. I think it was so well cast. Well, and that character was just used so cleverly for like all kinds of um, fun sight gags. I want to talk a mm-hmm. little about how I think it kind of breaks the film's tether to reality in a way that I didn't appreciate. We can get into that later. But for the most part, I mean, yeah, I think all the different ways, because Hank has this like sort of chameleon kind of, um, what's the word? I'm like? Oh, yeah, sort of this chameleon style camouflage ability um, that he uses as he's sneaking all around this this um, aquatic reserve. Uh, and then even the end credit sequence is just kind of this game where you're trying to find him in all these different shots. And I think they, yeah. they have a lot of clever fun with him. Do you know what the average age of your theater was? I'm just curious who went and saw this movie. I think ours was like a healthy mix of kids and adults, but yeah. more with adults with kids. Okay. Yeah, same here. I went and saw a 7 p.m. show on Thursday night, and I would say it was. It seemed like it was mostly families. 7 p.m. show on Thursday night. Interesting. Oh, we went to uh, like, yeah, 7.30 on a Friday night. Okay. my I, I went to a, a 9.30 showing on a Thursday night. And every single person in the, in the theater were high schoolers. Oh, how fun! It was, wow. it was just high schoolers, and then me and my wife, and that was, <laughs> and that was who are also high schoolers. Exactly. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. But it, it bringing the youth voice. I, I I was thinking like most of those high schoolers were probably like six when that movie came out. Right. Sure. So when the first one came out. So yeah, it's 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 insane. That's cool. I'm a big proponent of seeing movies that are made for children with children. I yeah. love to hear how they react to those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite part, though, of the screening was watching the trailers yes. before the movie and hearing the kids in our theater just die laughing at certain parts and trailers. Basically, when everyone anyone got like fell or like ran into a wall. Yeah, <laughs> we can like, we we can cut this out. But what trailers did you guys get? Oh, they all look terrible. No. Oh, yeah, yeah same here. There yes. was not one that I was. I think. No. Yeah, other than Mona, did you guys get which the monster truck gorgeous trailer? and wonderful. No, we didn't get the monster truck trailer. Yeah, we got oh, monster truck. That one I've heard looks terrible. It's so bad. We got Yo, we Sing. Had, yeah, we got Sing, which I, I mean, movies that are about animals when they could just as easily be about humans just already irritate me. But Sing yeah. just feels like the most kind of like pop culture referencey. Film, like exactly. animated Big. film that I'm expecting, yeah. and there was a woman sitting behind us in the theater just cackling at the theater at the <laughs> yeah. trailer for Sing. She we could not get enough of it. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's true. That one was good. Uh, yep. I feel like we got. Oh, we got the Ice Age one, like the seventh Ice oh Age movie. Oh my gosh! Right? Yeah. It's like I, the Land Before Time of this generation. Yeah. yeah. I've I've only seen the first one, but that watching the trailer for that looks like it has gone off the rails. Yeah. There are like yeah. aliens in it, and like that's insane. <laughs> Part of the fun of all those trailers was being like, "That looks terrible," and then the seven year old <laughs> behind you being like, "It looks amazing." <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> Um, Oh, yeah. So before we head into spoilers, though, let's talk about the Pixar short that aired before Finding Dory, um, Piper. So good. So good. I think I think it's interesting that um, they did this animation style for Piper, which fits a lot more of like what they did with the good dinosaur. Um, And obviously, obviously, for a sequel like Finding Dory, they have to stick with the original animation style. But watching those two back to back was really cool to kind of see the contrast mm-hmm. in, in where they've gone with their animation. Um, and I, I am really pumped to see kind of what the, what they come out with in the future in that style. I mean, when the waves, as it's opening, as like the title is coming up, there's like uh, some water just coming up onto a beach. And it looked like video like film it looked completely real to life and i was so blown away and uh the shallow depth of field they used throughout it um the animation was just so beautiful and thematically it was such a great pair with finding dory um i just i yeah i was every scene every single frame looked like a painting it was so gorgeous I feel like Pixar short films, my reaction is always one of two things. It's either like, oh, that was really cute, or or it's like I am just blown away that they were able to accomplish so much like emotional depth in um, such a short amount of time. Um, so this, to me, this was a really gorgeous one. I think overall it still struck me as like, oh, that was really cute. But um, mm-hmm. just in terms of like, yeah, the 
the visual effect it had was just absolutely stunning. Yeah, and I, 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 I definitely think that's kind of where where everybody's kind of hype for this this is 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 actually in the animation the story's good it's it's cute it is cute but not like the most emotionally wrought <laughs> thing we've seen what was the one uh i forget what it was before but it was like called luna or something the la luna la luna gosh that one wrecked me it was just amazing what was it's la like, luna well, Luna's about the one with the kid who goes out with his dad and his grandpa on the boat, and they oh and yeah, the moon, remember yeah. Oh man, yeah. I thought that was so. That was one of those that I was like, wow, I can't believe they did that in five minutes. We've definitely come a long way from those birds on a telephone wire. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting. They they kind of use these as like proving grounds for people that they want to direct future movies. Mm-hmm. Um, those little shorts. Um, and the guy, the guy who directed it, he's been an animator with Pixar since like Bugs Life. Um, but this is his first kind of thing other than animation do it being in, in the director's chair. So I'm really curious to see if they'll, if they'll let him kind of move forward. Yeah. The grammar and syntax he used for all the different shots in between everything were really compelling. So I think he would be very well suited to a full length feature. Yeah. Okay. We ready to move on to spoilers. Spoilers for Finding Dory. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Are you paying attention? It's your last chance to walk away. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Now, cracking gas. Spoilers! Remember, you wanted this. Yeah, I'll start on a more negative note, um, because I don't (laughs) want to dwell here, because overall I was a big fan of this movie, but I mentioned earlier that it did kind of bother me how this movie loses kind of any tether to reality i feel i mean obviously every pixar film asks you to suspend disbelief to like toys can come to life and a rat could work in a kitchen and like fish can talk and can love each other um but this one does can love each other i love how that's (laughs) suspending reality (laughs) (laughs) but this one uh like i i definitely think finding dory gets almost excessively cartoonish to me at the end yeah. Um, especially when you've got, yeah, pretty much like it felt like this kind of had the same problem that a lot of, I think, recent Pixar films have had, which is um, that the um, act three just kind of stretches on and on and on. And they want to give one more challenge and they want to put one more obstacle and they just really draw out the emotional weight. And in this case, it was I think it was when they had the. Um, octopus driving the truck driving that the I truck. was like, oh, yeah. you yep. lost me, That's you lost me. I was with you yeah. right up to this, but now you lost me. I was with yeah. it the whole time the octopus was like crawling around the reserve. Yes. Like I was yes. like, yeah, octopuses can do that. Octopuses yeah. are so smart. And it's just so well animated and fun that I was on board. But yeah, uh huh, yeah. As yeah, as soon as he st- as soon as he started driving, that's when it lost me too. I was like, okay, we're doing this now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was very Looney Tunes. Well, mm-hmm. and I think one so one of the guys that I saw the film with was talking about, I think another problem with more recent films is it feels like they often just need a few more a few more beats or a few more pauses to really let stuff land, not just the emotional moments, but even a lot of the jokes. Uh Yeah. Brave was the first time I noticed this where it felt like it got so slapsticky that you were just jerking from one joke to one joke to one joke and they never really let them kind of land. They never it 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 didn't feel like it had a comfortable pace. It felt like it had just gotten more and more frantic. And I think towards the end, this starts to feel that way as well, where you've got all these characters making all these jokes. And I just, I really wanted them to like trust their characters and trust their jokes and let them land. Um, because they have such like great humor in particular, the, the whale shark and the beluga, I think they have the most hilarious banter. And when they just let them, when they give them space to interact, it's hysterical. But so often, like, they would just get one or two little remarks in and then cut to something else immediately. And I wanted them to stick around a little longer. Yeah. My favorite humor in this movie was, like, any bickering humor. Like, early on, we have, like, that cup, that fish, like, husband and wife, it seemed like, when Dory was lost. Oh, yeah. And just, like, any of, like, that banter between the two of them or between the whales, like... Of being annoyed with each other as neighbors are um, like that those were the funniest moments for me as an adult thinking like oh yeah that's very real <laughs> those those bickering fish at the beginning were kate mckinnon and bill Hader. yeah i recognize uh, bill Hader, but i couldn't tell it i couldn't figure out kate mckinnon yeah uh, yeah i didn't hear kate mckinnon in that but yeah bill Hader, you can spot a mile away oh yeah right. <laughs> 
Oh man. No, I thought I thought they did a really great job with um with kind of that the the humor the humor went a long way I think in this in this movie. Um yeah. kind of bringing bringing everybody together because like like you said those bickering moments that that bickering humor is a really great way to build a character. Mm-hmm. Um and I think they did a really great job of kind of building in these characters really quickly because you meet a lot of new characters and they do a really good job of that. I thought the sea lions were so funny. Those like, Cockney accents, man, those were so good. <laughs> yeah, it was so and and, and Gerald like whenever Gerald. that whole bit with like, this monobrow like uh, sea lion, <laughs> like it's I can tell it was put in there for four year olds, but it worked for me. There's <laughs> <laughs> like don't get on this rock. It was yeah, it was so funny. Um, oh, go ahead. Uh, another thing that had me laughing, even though it was like a simple recurring bit was Marlin trying to call a bird from great distances. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, just like, no luck. Just thinking, like, if I just say this enough times, this bird will show up. Also, the entire sequence with, I think, Dory's lost in the pipes and she's communicating with Destiny and they're both speaking whale the entire time. And I feel like it's, like, surrounded by really heavy emotional moments and the fact that they're still kind of having this serious conversation but having it in whale just, it was, like, perfect. <laughs> Pixar humor. What's funny <laughs> is that like that they speak whale to each whale, you know, in quotation marks to each other. Yeah. But that like they also had regular conversation. Like, right. There's yeah. no reason. It's almost like it's this special <laughs> secret code between them. But it's not like she right. had to learn whale to talk to no. Destiny. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, One more of my other favorite gags. Um, that this Pixar's done this before, but I like that Pixar's occasionally will play up like the cute factor of like a baby animal or a child. Oh, but I also love gosh. how a few times now Pixar has painted toddlers as being like sort of horrifying little monsters. The first time they did it was in uh I think the first time I remember was in Toy Story Three, the first sequence where the toys get put in like the young kids' yeah. room and they all just Later. come in and it's from the toys it's from the toys perspective so they all just look huge and they're like poking and throwing and tossing mm-hmm. and breaking and yep. this film has a sequence where um i think it's dory and hank that get stuck in a petting zoo and again it's just like all you see are these huge monstrous hands just like shooting through the water and just like groping <laughs> Grabbing and, poking and poking and hurting fish. these fish and it's just like once again these in another <laughs> movie the kids could be cute but in this movie they're just absolute monsters yeah. It's just funny because like kids that age are watching this movie. So is right. this like their p- version of a PSA? Like, be good with the toys that you own. Like, be nice to the be fish gentle. at the petting portion. I think so. I th- yeah. I I think <laughs> kids will be a lot more. I think they'll be a lot more cautious at like when they're playing with fish now. Yeah. Pixar's <laughs> like, making the world a better I place. Kill yeah. Uh, I thought I, it was I, so funny whenever oh. the octopus got poked and inked everywhere, and Dory was like, "We all do it. It's okay." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I I I wanted to like, and I'm glad we're in spoiler section, but I wanted to talk about um, the use of that marine, what is it, marine wildlife, whatever. Yeah, um, Sigourney Weaver what, presents. What was it called? The Jewel of something, California. Um, Morro Bay. The, ju- yeah. the Jewel of Morro Bay. It's a. Re- it's actually a real place oh. down here. Oh, I was it's wondering not a, that. Is Sigourney Weaver really involved? Sigourney Weaver is not involved, sadly. Okay. <laughs> and it's an Once actual... again, another hilarious recurring that, bit in the that film. That was a great I bit. know, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's an aquarium, not really like a, a catch-and-release wildlife refuge place. Um, it's just a normal aquarium. Um, but I, I thought it was really interesting how they how they used that because a lot of times I feel like in like nature movies they use places like that. And I mean, even in Finding Nemo, they used him catching Finding Nemo as kind of like the, he's the bad guy. And it's like I thought it would be more about like escape this place. Um, and, it, and it wasn't. I thought they, they used it really well as a kind of re- rehabilitation center for these people. Yeah. And they were releasing some people back into the sea and taking some people other places. And like, yeah, Hank wanted to go to Cleveland. It wasn't like I have to escape. I have to, you know, get right. away from these people who are taking me. It's it's like it, it really they really used it, I think, efficiently. But also um, it wasn't like the danger zone. Yeah. Yeah. That was really fun. Yeah. To have to escape, but it also not be like we're in this terrifying place. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, a place that we need to leave. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. a lot of the slapstick, difficult, like removal from reality stuff, kind of came from fish being on land, and all of the weird situations that that puts you in, and how impossible it is to get out of those in like pragmatic ways. Like in Finding Nemo, I know there was 
of course, the scene where uh, Nemo is taken uh, to the dentist and everything, but the majority of that movie takes place underwater, and so mm-hmm. much of that is just this its own world. Everyone's, you know, floating. You're able to see this underlot underwater life in a whole new way, um, and it felt so much more believable. And so, even though I loved that uh, that environment too, and I love that they're kind of preaching this element of people aren't all bad like they can do good things for nature and fish um (laughs) i am i'm just now starting to realize like oh that's probably where a lot of that disconnect happened was having these fish on ground Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah having dory in a sippy cup right (laughs) yeah yeah an analogy bottle yeah Yeah. there were so many times when like when like they changed their water situation and i was like oh no this would not work in real life the ph balance of that water would be totally incompatible with <laughs> yeah they're choked to death yeah or it's exactly. not even salt water most of the water they spend in time in is not salt water I exactly yeah <laughs> bothered by that I, yeah now, what's that uh in spongebob squarepants when there's that squirrel that lives underwater but it has a like spacesuit of air like a helmet walking around everywhere underwater. And so suddenly SpongeBob SquarePants gets to have this squirrel friend for no real reason. Like that's Sandy what it Cheeks. started She's feeling like. She's from Texas. Like. I don't know. She is from Texas. About. She likes pecan pie. I remember mm-hmm. that. But yeah, Sandy Cheeks. That's so funny. But yeah, that's what it started feeling like by the end of this thing. Like jump into a Nalgene and then into a cup and then into yeah. a bucket and then go through the fountain. That's going <laughs> right. to be fine. Okay, so let's uh, evaluate this movie on the jesse's song pixar scale um i kind of feel like it's unfair but ever since jesse's song in toy story 2 i feel like people have tended to evaluate pixar films based on like what are those really intense overwhelming memorable emotional beats um that kind of wreck you either positively or negatively so let's talk what were the jesse song moments in this film for you before we jump in have you guys seen the youtube clip of people ending pixar movies at the jesse song moments no. no. Okay, it's really funny. It's like basically like because she loved me and like get the car drives away and she's in this pile of like leftover toys and then it's like you got a friend it like all credits. <laughs> yeah, for all the movies. Oh, just like whenever that moment is at the movie ending the yeah. movie. Right, it. whenever something really terrible happens, it's like that's the end. Yeah. I don't know. That's <laughs> funny. But yeah, oh. good question, Brent. I feel like for me it was um when we before we see her parents, but we see all of the shells leading into oh, yeah. like a little oh, home. Yeah. So I just look. knowing that that effort was there before we even know whether her parents are still around or not. I was openly weeping. Yeah, and recognize you know exactly what that. Yeah, that's like to me that is on par with all of Pixar's best like emotional beats. Because um, yeah, like you said, Sandra, you haven't met the parents yet, but you're just starting to piece together like, oh, I know exactly what this is, and then you see the lines of cells radiating or yeah radiating out in all the different directions it was just it was beautiful yeah Yeah, and it was it was sweet that it like gave adults that moment where we know what that means without having to explain it and then explaining it a few moments later for like kids who might not understand like what all that meant and like spelling it out for the kids but giving the adults the moment the moment before where it didn't need to be spelled out yeah, I, right. I gasped and started crying. And it's still like, I just didn't stop. I did not stop crying. <laughs> like, because they kept, like you said, they explain it. And then after they kind of talk through it, they do an even wider shot. And you can see even more shells going in even more directions. And yeah, that was, that was so affecting. That was the most affecting moment for me, I think. I also, some of my favorite Pixar moments are when they will go to really dark places and then stay there. Um, sometimes for like excruciating amounts of time, um, you know, I was mentioning before that sometimes they don't let stuff land, but I think they still often do take you to dark places and keep you there. So the one that always stands out for me is, um, there's a sequence in up when they have finally brought the house to the specific place where Carl wants to bring it. It's landed. Carl and, uh, Russell have gotten in this big fight and so they've separated, and so Carl, just in this kind of really angry way, finally, like, sets up the chairs and sets up his chair and his wife's chair in the right arrangement. And he gets out the photo album and he just kind of sits and relaxes. And, like, the lighting is really eerie and unhappy. And you can just tell that, like, this has been the goal. This is what he wanted. But everything is wrong and it's not really what he wanted at all. 
Um, and that whole sequence is just so slow and it kind of makes you sit in that uncomfortable emotional space with Carl and let you feel like all of his grief and his regret. And I just remember being really impressed they went there. And in this film, there are two sequences, I think, that are just really hard to watch that they really kind of drag out. The first is when Dory as a child gets lost for the first time. Um, and there's this long montage where she's just asking fish after fish, like, yeah. hey, can you help me find my... And she's at first, she can't really remember any details about her parents, and then she can't remember at all like even what she's looking for. And then the second oh. sequence is when she has like i guess escaped or gotten sucked out i can't remember what happens the that marine facility and you see her get dumped out right right back where she was when she was a child and yeah. once she goes through exactly the same journey where she's kind of like trying to figure out what to do and then she realize like she's forgetting everything and there's just like this bleak moment of like oh what's going to happen now like is she just completely back to square one and everything that's happened is going to be lost and then that's of course when she stumbles across the shells and that you have that amazing cathartic moment yeah. But they really, I couldn't agree with you more, Brent. They really let that scene breathe. I mm-hmm. felt that all the way. And I, I was so worried. I didn't know. It's something that's so hard to do in a movie successfully. Because it, it, we all kind of know that movies you know, have these three acts and there's all these things that are going to go through, and, but it's all going to be fine at the end, usually. Um, but genuinely in that moment, I was taken to a place of, I have no idea what's going to happen to her now. This is so, so scary and so disheartening. And that made the payoff when she found the shells all the more uh, rewarding. All right. Well, does anybody else have any other thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, Two thoughts. The first is when you see the same sex couple in this film and see the tiny like fraction of a moment that they have, any controversy that related that resulted from the trailer just seems like even more kind of hysterical and overblown than it was already. Um, There is a same-sex couple, but obviously they are featured just about as long as they're featured in the trailer, which is you get a reaction from them and then they disappear. Um, So, like, high-five to Pixar for including one, but, like, I am just kind of rolling my eyes at the um, all of the petitions that resulted from that shot from the trailer. Um, And then Pixar has never really had outstanding, um, like, closing songs over their credits. Um, I do love Beyond the Sea featured on the original Finding Nemo, um, but I thought um, Sia's cover of Unforgettable was ultimately, like, no pun intended, kind of forgettable. Pun received regardless of intent. I do love the song Unforgettable, though. Guys... It was so crazy. Another thing that made this movie so, in, like, just made Lindsay and I cry so much when we watched it were the two songs that we danced with our parents to at our wedding were What a Wonderful World and Unforgettable, which are oh back boy. to back in this movie. <laughs> they are indeed. And it's all about, like, finding your parents and having a home with your parents. You're like, we don't have, like, which life is different now. Like, it was just, <laughs> it was so, it was so good, though. It was so good. All right. Well, I think that about wraps this up. Why don't we go around and say where you can find yourself on the internet? Uh, you can find me, Lawson Soured, and say hey or whatever on Twitter at Lawson West. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at the same handle. I'm Lucas Wright. You can find me uh, just about anywhere at Lucas and Stuff. My name is Brent Bailey. You can find me at B-R-P-A-B-A. And I'm Sandra Omstutz. You can find me on all platforms at Sandra Omstutz. My last name is spelled A-M-S-T-U-T-Z. Also, make sure to go follow our podcast Twitter account at Feeling It Pod. And tune in next week because we are going to be um, talking about our summer reading. And we're excited to get into some book talk with y'all. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Keep swimming. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Go away. I'll see you soon, okay? That's it? Go home? Yep. Move it along, Padre. Goodbye, old friend. That's it. That's our show for tonight, people.